Hello and welcome, everybody, to Minutes to Curtain by Miscreant Theatre Collective. I am Andy Rogers. I am the executive swashbuckler of the Miscreant Theatre Collective. And I'm joined today, as many of you know, brevity is the soul of wit. Sadly, we have Dylan McDonald with us today, so wit's not going to be part of it. Thank you for joining us today, Dylan. Well, I mean, I think that you will find several uh, women in my past who will say that I am quite brief. <laughs> so I don't know what that means You're... for my wit, but <laughs> it, it feels good to me. Yeah, that's all that matters, as, as far as I'm aware. Um, well... I'm very glad that you're here today. Uh, we are going to be discussing the play Bus Stop, which was written in 1955 by William Inge. And it was turned into a movie just one year after, starring, oh gosh, what was her name? Some famous blonde, very fond of Charles Manson. Politics. Well, sort of, yeah. Kind of, no, that wasn't quite it. Marilyn Manson. Marilyn Manson, no, wait, I mean, there are a lot of beautiful people. Marilyn Monroe. Yeah, we we got there. That's the one, we found it. Uh, so Dylan, as always, I would love for you to briefly summarize this particular play. However, there are only two of us working behind the counter tonight, and someone just put in a big order. They sent me up, a bloodhound in the hay, two chicks on a raft, shit on a shingle, burn one, take it through the garden, pin a rose on it. So this is going to take me... A few minutes. I'd really love for you to be done with this before I, I finish. Uh, it sounds like a Waffle House order. There's a diner in this bus stop. Yeah. So, But it's a non-specific. It's not a Waffle House. Are we are we sponsored by Waffle House this week? This week. <laughs> this week, that I think sense. Waffle House is paying us to not mention them. Waffle House, when <laughs> nobody else is open. <laughs> when you haven't had diarrhea in a week. <laughs> <laughs> For a week. Jesus, that would be too long. So anyway, I've got this huge uh, short order here. Uh, I'm going to hit the the grill and the fryer. Uh, go ahead and tell us all about this play and make it snappy, all right? All right. Well, you hit the fryer, which sounds offensive to our brothers of the cloth, but whatever you want to do. All right. <laughs> Deep cut. Bus stop takes place entirely inside of a small restaurant about 30 miles west of Kansas City. Mm-hmm. Um, this restaurant also functions as a bus stop for a, a long-haul bus moving west towards Denver, Montana, those kinds of places. And it's about 1 a.m. in Act 1. Uh, and there's a snowstorm coming in, and the, the two ladies working, the, the older, older woman who owns the place, and then her younger teenage... Uh, waitress are preparing for the arrival of this bus understanding that they're more than likely going to have to stop and stay for for some unknown amount of time the, the weather is moving is moving in from the west and the road is sort of jammed so the bus is going to have to stop and they're going to have to hang around at this restaurant for a while so they're getting prepared a little bit of banter goes back and forth um and before you know it the bus has shown up and we meet the first passenger of this bus uh by the name of Cherie. She comes in in a bit of a huff, carrying her suitcase, um, saying that there's a cowboy on the bus who has kidnapped her. Oh that boy. that he, he found her in Kansas City, Missouri, and he's taking her to a ranch in Montana. And she just needs to stay, you know, to stay in the restaurant until everybody gets back on the bus and leaves. And he won't even notice that she hasn't gotten back on the bus. So that's sort of our first, our first main conflict is Cherie is being pursued by a cowboy that we haven't met yet. And then we'll exit pursued by a bear. Thank you. As far as I understand. God damn it, you got there before I could. 
<laughs> and so we meet Will, the sheriff, who says, yeah, I think I can take care of you. Don't worry about it. We'll, we'll figure it out. And then a couple of the other, um, the driver of the bus, Carl, comes in, and he knows he knows the middle-aged woman who goes by the name of Grace. So Carl knows Grace pretty well. She owns the place. He drives the bus through two, three times a week. Um, they have some banter. And then we meet an, an older, uh, a doctor of philosophy who is also quite drunk and getting more drunk by the name of Gerald Lyman. And so we meet all these folks and they sort of introduce themselves and go to their individual places. And then these two cowboys walk in. An older one named Virgil and a young, gruff son of a bitch named Bo Decker. Bo Decker. And he comes in, loudly announces himself, and basically makes an ass of himself quite quickly. Sort of gets off on the wrong foot with everybody, including going right to Cherie and being like, hey, why didn't you why didn't you wake me up? Why didn't you get me off the bus? You trying to run away from me? Like he's he's already all bravado, all man. All um, man. All man. He's he's just basically an asshole. Um <laughs> And so we learn a little bit more about these folks. We learned that Cherie has was a singer at a nightclub and that Bo just fell head over heels for her and decided, much without Cherie's input, that they were going to get married. And then we learned some little things about the other folks. You know, Lyman has been married three times. Um, he seems to be kind of a disgraced professor and he seems to be sort of a wandering soul. Everybody orders food if they want, sort of introduces themselves, and they learn that they're going to be stuck here for a few hours while they clear up the road further west from the snow. Makes makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, uh, the bloodhound in the hay is up, so God. Uh, you know, a little bit more time, but don't don't drag. Yeah, I'm sure every one of our listeners know what the bloodhound and the hay is. I mean, it's pretty obvious. It's a hot dog with sauerkraut. I don't know why you need to get all uptight about this. And so near near the end of Act One, we get the first sort of blow up from Cherie, where she basically says, "Bo, I don't love you," and he feels you know he basically acts like a kicked dog, and he goes to pull out his guitar and start tuning it up, and and he even says at the end of the first act, it never occurred to him that a woman wouldn't love him. Hmm. Which is an interesting thing that I'm sure we'll talk about later. Yeah, probably. Sounds like so, it. So Act 2 starts up just minutes later from Act 1. Uh, Carl and Grace have disappeared. Car- Carl went out for a quote-unquote walk, and Grace went up to her apartment that she lives in above the uh, above the cafe. And we aren't going to see much from them for more, most of Act 2, but I'm sure that doesn't mean anything. Elma, the teenage waitress, decides that we should have a floor show. Everybody kind of has some skills. You know, Virgil can play the guitar. Uh, we've already heard that Cherie can sing. Lyman knows all of Shakespeare. He's already been quoting some sonnets. He's been kind of trying to to flirt with, with Elma a little bit. So everybody's going to do their own little thing as part of this floor show. A very Canterbury Tales way to pass this time. Everybody tell us a story, sing us a song. You're the piano man. Yeah, dance a dance, and we're going to do this shit. Um, so so we go through, and Virgil plays a song. Lyman tries to be Romeo to Elma's Juliet, and in the middle of it, realizes that he's been hitting on a teenage girl and kind of just backs away. Is like, I can't do this. I'm, I'm not interested. He finally realizes that he's being a fucking creep and kind of backs out. And then it is Cherie's time to stand up and sing her song. And we don't even know what she sings because all we hear is Bo falling madly in love with her again and going around talking to, to Virgil, trying to figure out how to get her back to the point where when she's done singing, she jumps down and slaps Bo. She says, you have no manners, basically. Um, and Bo says, I love you more than ever. Let's go down to the Justice of Peace and get married right now. He tries to take her away. He's like, look, you love me. I know that you love me. Around this time, we f- we found out that 
Bo and Cherie slept together. And that's why he, he thinks that they made love, they're going to get married, and he is just convinced of it. Well, Will the Sheriff is fucking done with it. And he he takes it out on Bo, basically says, look, you're done, you're not going to harass this woman in front of me. And they tumble out into the street. We don't get to see the fight, but we hear about it. Mm-hmm. And Will fucks Bo up pretty damn good. Wait, now when you say tumble and getting fucked up, is this a sexual thing? This is not a sexual thing. God well, it, damn it. other than the fact that, as, um, as Susan Sarandon mentioned in Bull Durham, uh, men fighting always has some latent homosexuality behind it. And there's no reason not to think that these two men couldn't get it on in a more enlightened part of this United States that we live in. Oh, but And just also not, not in the 1950s. Oh, but, but just not Kansas, but, but, mostly. But yeah, it's not happening here. This is just a, a knockdown, drag-out fight, which Bo thoroughly loses. So as Will takes Bo down to the sheriff's office, uh, Virgil sort of lets Cherie know that she's actually the first woman that Bo has ever been with. So that's kind of a big bomb drop end of act two. Hmm. You mean like Mike Pence, just he's never been with another woman? Not in the same room, not in the same house. Anyway, real quick, pardon me. Uh, two chicks on a raft, burn one, take it through the garden, pin a rose on it. Uh, we still got one order left, so, uh, you know, keep on rolling here, okay? I thought there was also a tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree. That's a different That's a order. pecan pie. That's, yeah, obviously yeah, it is. Obviously. I knew that, definitely. <laughs> All right, so when we get in, we get into Act Three. Um, near, near the end of Act Two, Carl and Grace reappeared suddenly and spontaneously, um, and Will makes it known that it's he knows that they were upstairs fucking. What? Which was which was nice and fun. That was a nice little little turn there. Um, but we also find out that that Bo has come back and and he's quite cowed at the whole situation. Um, he is he's basically been asked by the sheriff to apologize to everybody for creating a scene and mostly to apologize to Cherie. Similarly, uh, Doctor Lyman has has fully committed to just you know I'm just going I'm going to go on to Denver. You know somebody mentioned that in Topeka there's a, a hospital for mental health. Maybe I'll check in there. Maybe I'll check with them. He realizes that he's been trying to woo a young girl. Um, and Elma doesn't still quite realize it till the end of Act Three. But um, nothing untoward is going to happen any further. And so as the play sort of racks, wraps up, everybody gets sort of a happy ending if you want to th- see it that way but the primary plot is that Cherie sees that Bo is now a changed man and he's so he's so pitiful and tight and Bo even admits to her himself you're the only woman I've ever been with I I think I love you I I do love you um and she says well do you still want me to come to Montana and he's he's over the moon about it and she says yeah I'm, I'm gonna go to the Montana I think I think I can love you too I can go to your ranch and as everybody gets back on the bus Virgil decides to stay it, it seems that Virgil doesn't need to be around Bo anymore it's like he was trying to shepherd him towards a better life and he's decided that he's gonna head off towards wherever the next bus is going I think it's going to Phoenix or Albuquerque or something like that and he gets kicked out of the restaurant because they're closing up for the morning. You know, it's now about 5 a.m., so they're closing up. Virgil has to find his own way. And we end sort of the way that we began with the the two waitresses, the owner of the cafe and the teenage waitress, talking a little bit about the trouble that Elma could have been into and how she's so pretty. Of course, she's going to attract plenty of boys, and she just needs to keep her wits about her. Sort of a, a nice motherly conversation and chat towards Elma as we fade out for the play curtain falls wow. End of the play 
Shit on a shingle. Sorry, that was uh, the orders up. Shit on a shingle. All right, yep. here we go. Well, thank you for that summary. That was that was lovely. First reactions to the play. My first reaction to this play is that it plays like a morality tale, but it is hamstrung thoroughly by having 1950s morality. <laughs> yes, and I, I completely agree. This very point was something of quite a bit of discussion during our uh, group discussion after we, we read this play. It feels like in order to properly discuss this play, we need a, a slightly different yardstick than looking at this from a 2021 morality point of view that this is not necessarily a poorly written play or anything like that but it can be problematic to look at this play and the lessons it's trying to espouse from more of a modern context of morality given how society has changed since 1955 given the me too movement and all of this it's hard not for it to seem inappropriate for example that dr lyman is constantly hitting on a 15 year old well, and it is revealed uh, through Carl. He he heard from one of the station agents at uh, at, at the Kansas City, Missouri stop that Lyman has been uh, picked up several times for, I believe the phrase is loitering around young women on the college campus. Yeah. Not a good look not a, at all. No, not, not a great look. So uh, that's actually the first topic that I'd, really like to discuss a little bit more in depth with you. Yeah, I think it's something that we have to address that we haven't necessarily needed to for our previous plays is that in order to even discuss this play any further than we have, I think we have to acknowledge that that there's no person in their right mind who would really agree with any of the things that happened in this play, right. particularly with a a man being so so bumbling and awkward around a woman that he accidentally fucking kidnaps her. And that, and that at the end of that very same play, that very same woman would agree to marry him and live with him on his ranch in Montana. Like that's, that's the kind of thing that doesn't play nowadays. And there's, there is no reason that we, that anybody would agree that that's a legitimate turn in four or five hours. Absolutely. However, I think that to discuss this play in a legitimate way is we just have to meet it where it's at. We have to understand that it was written in 1955 and we can see what it intends to do, mm -hmm. even if it no longer hits those beats or, or remains relevant in a way that we would find appropriate in, in 2021. Absolutely. So for the sake of our discussion, yes, one, we know that Bo is an abuser and though he has a backstory that might explain his confusion regarding his abuse of Cherie, we do not condone or accept that at all. Number two, we know that Dr. Lyman is a serial offender, uh, at the very least soliciting attention, quote-unquote, from underage girls. Mm -hmm. We do not accept or condone any of that. However, we recognize, as we have in previous discussions, the, this is set in a different time, not only set in a different time period, this was written in a completely different time period before our social mores changed. So with at least those basic things. Well, well and number three, 
it would be quite annoying for us every time we move forward in this conversation and address a particular plot point that is problematic for us to have to stop and couch our conversation in. Right. Well, like, obviously this is super fucked up, but so, so for the purposes of this conversation, we just need to talk about what the play intends to do absolutely, and, and how it's meant thematically. And then I think it's up to each, to each reader and each listener to decide whether that's something they can accept. And so I will say um, personally, if, if you don't, if you don't find any way to justify the kidnapping of a woman or the general abuse that Bo shows or um, a little bit of latent pedophilia, maybe this isn't the podcast episode for you. Yeah, you can you can probably skip and this one. It won't hurt my feelings at all. But but I still want to talk about this play because we decided to read it. Yeah. And and it definitely does highlight some storytelling tricks that I think are useful in terms of understanding the way that we tell stories on the page, on on the stage. And how American theater has evolved. Yeah. So you called this a morality play with 1950s morality. And, and that we need to meet this play where it is. Uh, where do we need to meet this play? What is this actually trying to tell the audience about the morality of men, honestly? Yeah, I think the first thing that I would say is, and I, I mentioned this in our first discussion where, where we first started talking about this play, was that this would have worked a lot better as a more absurd, uh, one of the more absurd Shakespeare comedies, something like A Much Ado About Nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, a where, comedy of errors. Yeah, where people are so clearly acting against their best interests and where two people so clearly are infatuated with each other that you get to talk more about that thin line between love and hate. Mm. As opposed to this, the way this comes across, which is is sort of a light but still dramatic work, in, in which we've got some really bad shit happening. So, <laughs> so, so to me, w- what we're really taught here is what is essentially wrong with Bo, and the problem with Bo is that he doesn't know anything. He's got a lust for life, but he has no experience. Mm. You know, he's a twenty-one-year-old boy. Mm-hmm. He's he's worked hard enough to earn some money, earn, and have his own ranch, and he's got like six thousand dollars in the bank, and oh, that's man. and that's nineteen fifty five money. Oh shit! And he also just went to this rodeo in Kansas City and won just about every prize he could have. I mean, he so, says that he says that, he's, and he's braggadocious. And yeah, who knows if that's true or not? But Bo is that kind of man who's you know he's young and he's lean and he's handsome and he believes that he has done everything. He's followed all the rules. Sure, he made money. He owns a ranch, and he at this point he believes that he's owed a wife. Mm-hmm. Not and and not even to mention the fact that he was a virgin, and so he met this this beautiful woman who winked at him and talked nice at him and took him to bed. And he's from a culture in which you marry the woman you have sex with. Mm-hmm. And he might have done it in the wrong order. Most of the time you want to marry the woman first. But he is convinced that because they had sex, like he he wakes up the next morning after their night and he says, basically, hot dog, we're getting married. And, and Sharia is like, wait, what? Who? And I think that where I want to go with this is this week's inappropriate reference of the week. You should smile more often. Yeah. That's a nice thing to say. (laughs) And what this made me think of was the movie wedding crashers. Oh, Um, which a lot of people have seen. If if you haven't seen it, it's, it's a fine watch. Uh, It's about a couple of uh, middle-aged dudes who crash weddings and try to sleep with 
members of the bridal party, essentially. As one um, does. Yeah, as one does. They go around, they have a good time, they're very charming, they're very witty, and they go to this real high-end wedding, and Vince Vaughn's character runs into a character played by Isla Fisher, and they wind up having sex on the beach. Ooh, uh, a not drinks. a drink. That's not an order. You can sit down. <sighs> okay, good. But they we have they have, have sex on the beach, and anyway. you know that's all done off screen. And sort of as they roll over and are getting dressed, um, her character looks at him and says, "Oh, I always knew my first time would be on a beach," and he freaks out <laughs> be- because the stereotype that she plays into fully is is of this love, Lauren. I just had my first sexual experience, and now I am madly in love with the man that I had sex with. Yeah, even though we haven't known each other for more than an hour. Yeah, it's a magic penis thing. Yeah, and she follows and and she plays that to a tr- to a T until you know until about the beginning of act 3 where she's like, "Oh, I thought guys just liked to hear that." No, I've had sex before. Like like she plays into all the stereotypes so that she can come back and subvert them and basically be like, "No, I've I've had sex before. I'm not like crazy about you for that reason, but I think we work well together." And and I feel like that's what Bo is meant to comment on as well is that there's this idea that it's the woman who when she finally has this monumental sexual experience that she's just going to be in love with and tied to this man forever and and you know she'll be your shadow you'll never be able to get away from her but in this case it's Bo who's that because mm-hmm. because Bo is that manly man who doesn't understand his own feelings and he's just had this monumentally powerful experience of having sex with a woman who he really feels something for and he doesn't understand his emotions but all he knows is that they're going to get married that is the truth of the matter and so he everything he does is based on this assumption he has that they had sex that means they're married yeah essentially and and what i really like about the argument that you're you're putting forward about Bo is that overall this play is very sex positive um, with the exception of Dr. Lyman and, and all of that. Yeah, but um, that's a very negative type of sex. So. Sure. But, but for example, Carl and Grace agree at the end of the play, hey, we're just, every other day I'm going to show up, we're going to bang one out, and everything's going to be fine, and we don't need more from a relationship than we've got now. And so really what the discussion about Bo does is it says, okay, this is what a non-functional sexual being really kind of looks like here this is how sex can go wrong particularly for the uninitiated into it and especially due to the the uptight puritan don't ever talk about sex values of 1950s america Mm -hmm. grace is is a classic example of a liberated independent woman who occasionally has sex because she wants it she likes it and it makes her less cranky uh, in her own words. So the play ends up being very sex positive, but especially for the time frame, you know, Grace has to apologize for setting a bad example when in the modern parlance, casual sex is not as big a deal or indeed shouldn't be a big deal at all. Yeah. So the discussion of sexuality here is quite different from the developing uh, sexual person in Elma to the just sure. budded in Bo and the the toxicity that that can represent. So I, I always thought that one of the main themes of this play was the way that uh, sexuality is understood amongst men. Or specifically is not understood. Thank you. Yes. When you look at the two main offenders of this play, 
Bo and Lyman, both of them have a skewed view of sex or what they want from a relationship or in a sexual relationship. And it becomes quite toxic. And I think that Bo's inexperience is really what leads to his level of toxicity. Uh, and and I, I mean, like you said, it he accidentally, or at least unintentionally, kidnapped a woman and took her across state lines, which is a federal crime. But of course, then you have the older, wiser man saying, I've been you before. I know where your life is going. You just need to calm down. And oh, by the way... Just don't mess with her, and we won't charge you with federal crimes. Yeah, and that's the, that's the thing is I think I, I think that Bo is is lucky in this scenario for for two things. There the only the only sympathy that you can have for Bo is that he's just too dumb to know better, <laughs> too dumb or too ignorant. Is he yeah. he doesn't know enough about the world to understand the massive ass he's making of himself. But also he's got he's got Virgil who's been with him for an unknown amount of time and the sheriff will who he meets tonight mm-hmm. um who are both strong examples of good men who sort of understand how the world works and understand that Bo isn't too far gone to change lyman might be a lost cause yes but Bo is just young and doesn't know any better so that's that to me is sort of the turning point and that's why and act two ends with a fight between will and Bo because in act one will says um, yeah, I can protect you. And someone says, I, I think it's probably Grace who says, oh, well, Will has never lost a fight. And Will says, well, yeah, I've lost one fight. Right. And then that one fight he lost comes back later. And that was, he, he reveals that he was basically Bo at Bo's age. Is Will was going around stealing horses because he could sell them. And he thought that he, he deserved them because he could take them. Mm-hmm. Much the way that Bo feels about Cherie. Or Cherry, I guess, if we're talking about Bo. Um, and that what set Will straight was being caught by a preacher who gave him a chance to confess, wouldn't confess, gave him plenty of chances to confess, and then the preacher just beat the shit out of Will. <laughs> and that's when he learned you can't just take whatever you want. Right. Because as as a young man with, with a sturdy back and, and a couple of biceps. God, I'm turned on. You can feel like you can take whatever the fuck you want until somebody else comes up and says no that's not that's not how this is going to work yeah so so will by by beating up Bo is instilling the same lesson lesson that he learned when he lost his fight was that you can't just take whatever you want and when you realize that you learn to be a lot more polite in public society absolutely i mean everyone has a plan until they get punched in front of a diner yeah that's almost the quote that's kind of what i was going for uh that's uh that's the i think that is the tagline for mike tyson chicken (laughs) till you get punched all back thank yeah call back to never mind um bowie's kind of given an image of the people he can become he can become will the good upstanding person who came to his senses or he can become dr lyman the degenerate who's still trying to pick up underage girls uh and for me, this play absolutely felt like almost supernatural, like No Exit or like Dante's Inferno of bringing the character through a crucible only to have them purified in the end. Because that's kind of what happens with Lyman and with Bo. The universal consequences of having a blizzard shut down the roads and requiring these people to be in the same room 
for a certain amount of time feels very much like No Exit, except uh, No Exit's about hell, and this play is about Kansas, so it really is an equal comparison, I think. I, I think that's one-to-one there. Um, but but you're right. It, it does feel like Bo it has to be taken through a journey. And I would like to, if I may, just point out the obvious metaphor of having his guardian and guide be named Virgil Blessing. Yeah. If, let it not be said that William Inge could not hit something right on the nose. I was going to say, if there was, if there was a nose... This would be on it. <laughs> uh, and yeah, I think that I think that that's a fair reading in that it, the idea of a bus stop, if you forget the fact that it's actually a diner, the idea of a bus stop or an airport or, or any place where many different people from many different walks of life might converge and, and run into each other, that's exactly what we're seeing here. Yeah. Is all these people from these different walks of life showed up here and were forced to interact with and reckon with each other. And what it allowed was for... Bo to see the kind of men that he could be, yeah. like you said, um, he could have been Will, he could have been Lyman, um, and he'd already been being shepherded by Virgil. And Elma also has the opportunity to see what's in store for her in the world moving forward. So, whereas I, I might disagree that there's anything actually supernatural about what happens, yeah. it's definitely the story of convergence, and I don't think that you write, I, I don't think that you explicitly give the name of the man walking Dante through the circles of hell as a first name. And then just to make sure you call him blessing. It's like, yeah, there's clearly something vaguely religious or ethereal about that. And particularly with the fact that once Bo has finally made an honest man of himself, Virgil doesn't feel the need to be with him anymore. Is Virgil basically is saying, I've gotten you to the place you need to be. Um, and it wasn't all Virgil, you know, it was a lot of Will, but it was Bo now appears to be on the right path. He's, he's learned to sort of subsume that that all-powerful id, that desire and belief that he deserves everything that he wants. He's found a good woman who seems to love him back and actually wants to go to the ranch with him, which means Virgil doesn't need to be there anymore. He's mm-hmm. off to save another soul. Yeah, and he ends up being left out in the cold as happens at rest stops and bus stops and things like that. And sometimes happens when you help a person reach their own goal and they no longer need you. I do think that the appearance of a character named Virgil Blessing is very similar to when we read The Diviners by Jim Leonard Jr. And we had a reverend named C.C. Showers who helped teach the hydrophobic boy that he could take a bath. It's... It's quite on the nose. So I'd like to ask, if I may, uh, you described this play as almost a Canterbury Tales. Whose story is really being told here? Because this is clearly, from a performance perspective, an ensemble piece full of strong characters where the collage of all of their interactions is supposed to give us kind of the meaning and the message of the play. I like to think that there is usually one particular viewpoint through which the message is being given. No, obviously, you and I have discussed this, and generally we have agreed that it seems like Elma is more or less the main character here. She's the one who is being given information to parse through her naivete and innocence and ignorance. And even when her reaction at the end of the play is like, oh, a man was attracted to me. Yeah, he's way older, and I'm not of the age of consent, but ooh, that feels fucking good. 
um, she then is given the guidance to carry through that. She's also one of the first characters on and one of the last characters on. So I think that there is an argument to be made that this is really the story of Elma observing the toxic masculinity, the pedophilia, the the good example of Will and Grace and Carl. Will and Grace. Oh shit. Um and and coming no, Jack. <laughs> and, and coming through on the other side. This is a coming of age tale. Yeah, I agree and I feel like it would be it, it would be tempting to originally say that it's Bo's story because Bo is the person who really seems to go through the most amount of change. You know, he is he is the focus of the the action, but almost by choice. You know, the first thing he does is he walks in, kicks open the door essentially, and says, "I'm Bo, and I'm here to fuck shit up." <laughs> and that's and that's who you're gonna focus on. Yeah. Um. But so it's it, while it's really you know. Plot-wise, you know, it's a lot about Bo and Cherie. I think that Elma is definitely the point-of-view character. Mm. And you think about, there's there's a really good reason why, like, TV shows and movies and video games use this concept of, like, the rookie cop Mm. learning the beat. Or the character who has amnesia or, or is an outsider to the group and is being accepted into the group is because what that allows you to do is take your main character and give the world a lot of reasons to explain itself to the character and thereby explain itself to the audience. Even from a performer's perspective, what's interesting is the discoveries that characters make, the arc that they go through. You know, they say when writing stories, show, don't tell, and this would be a much more boring story if Dr. Lyman simply sat down with Elmo and was like, you know, I really shouldn't be hitting on the 14, 15 year olds. And I've learned my lesson. Exactly. And 14 people is too many to hit on. Even if they're all 15. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, it seems like we mostly agree that Elma appears to be the primary. So, yeah, I would definitely say that Elma, Elma seems to be the point of view character, but, but as we've been discussing, I think you could, really make the argument that the story is maybe being told by Virgil. Hmm. And I think it's specifically because he plays the smallest part in the overall play and also appears to be this mythic uh, angelic figure who is guiding Bo through his life. You know, all, all that all that Virgil does is offer other people some insight into their own lives, primarily sure. Bo. Um, he, he can play a song, he can play fairly well, but he's, you know, he's the bard singing other people's stories. Sure. Uh, and he also, in addition to providing the music, like, I, I think that he's a small part in number of lines, but certainly he is the object to which it seems like Sherry is casting her affections, which causes Bo to go even further into the deep end. Uh, so he... He seems to be the catalyst for change amongst these characters. He's heavily involved in the floor show. He's giving advice about Bo and I think about Dr. Lyman to the other characters. So it does seem as though he is at least a catalyst or a cause of resolution more than conflict almost. Yeah, he he creates all almost no conflict he he tries to back Bo off on a number of his very aggressive ventures and then there's also the fact that at the end when the story is done being told Virgil is still left out in the cold mm-hmm. you know, very specifically you know 
that just happens to some people is he's he's there to to experience it and report on it and then go off and experience the next adventure. So I, I find that interesting that he's he's not even necessarily a point of view character, but he might be like the omniscient narrator mm. of it all. The last two lines of the play are like, well, you're gonna you got you're gonna get left out in the cold, and Virgil says, Yeah, that happens to some people. The story of this play has stopped being told. Like we could have almost dropped the curtain a line or two before then. And it would have made just as much sense, but giving the insight at the end of the play to Virgil suggests a continuation of his journey at the very least. Yeah, and if for no other reason than the fact that it allows us to see Virgil as somehow separate from the story. Mm. Yeah. That the story happened, everybody arrived on the bus, including the storyteller. Mm -hmm. All the things that happened in the diner happened. And all of the players in the story got back on the bus and left mm-hmm. or closed up shop at the cafe and went home. Went home to sleep. Leaving Virgil to go seek the next story, basically. Yeah. So again, I feel like that's a little bit ethereal, maybe a bit of a stretch, but I can't think of why Virgil is in the play otherwise, other than to just antagonize Bo in a couple of places by being the object of another woman's affections. Yeah, he he serves as the foil to Bo, both in example and also unsolicited attention from the women in the play. Yeah. And if that was all we needed, we already had Will for that character. So so Virgil must be here for some other reason. And, and I think that you can easily make the argument that it's to observe the story and tell it and then go on to find another story to tell. Yeah, I think that, that makes sense. Uh, that someone has to testify in a relatable way to the events that have happened and then be able to pass on that same message. So in some ways, we're getting the message that Virgil passed on, he learned and passed on. We may just as easily be seeing Elma's realizations and revelations on the same topic as well. I'm sorry, I hear the printer going back in the kitchen. I think I'm getting another order going. I need to go jump on that real quick, because if I don't get tipped, then I can't pay my rent. And that's bad for both of us. So uh, I'm just going to ask you real quick, one last little question while I'm taking care of that. Um, The best pickup line is a kidnapping. Why do you agree to that? Well, I I think that you might be misunderstanding what what I meant when I said that. And I did say it. Um, and what it is is that any that any good pickup line should be indistinguishable from an emotional kidnapping. <laughs> is that if you come in with that killer line, you know, like like this one, um, are you from Ireland? Because my penis is Dublin. Because when that lands. <sighs> You have transported that woman away to a world she knows nothing about, and she's about to learn, baby. <laughs> so when I say that that every good pickup line is akin to a kidnapping, what I mean is emotionally, at that deepest core level, is that when I turn on the charm, we're going. You have have no control over where we're going or how fast because I am driving this bus, baby, and you know that you want to be in the front seat. (laughs) 
<laughs> Why the front seat? You might I, ask. I don't know. I don't know how many buses. I don't know how many seats there are on this bus. I and to be honest, I have never really had much game, so <laughs> I just felt like I'd go full bow, bow decker. You're riding the bow decker bus now. Oh shit! It ain't a double decker. It's a bow decker. It's a bow decker. God, I I love that. And for the record, after this needs to be scrubbed from all of humanity because I might get fired. For this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, thank you, Dylan, as always, for joining me tonight. This is a wonderful discussion, and you grow prettier every single day. I grow in some way every day. Never stop growing, inch by inch. Thank you, everyone. Have a good evening. Hedwig and the Angry Ing. <laughs> Minutes to Curtain is a project of the Miscreant Theater Collective, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. This was written and produced by Dylan McDonald and Andy Rogers and directed by Aaron Slemak and sometimes Dylan McDonald. <laughs>